0: 2007 was a simpler time. Steve Jobs took the stage and famously proclaimed that he had three new innovations to release. A new web browser, a new iPod, and a new phone. A web browser, an iPod, and a phone. The iPhone. The Boeing 787 Dreamliner jet took its first flight, the first new American multifunctional jumbo jet in more than 30 years. And the Dow Jones Industrial Average? It skyrocketed to the highest point ever at 14,164 points before beginning a months-long tumble that led to the greatest financial collapse and scarred an entire generation financially. In my personal life, I flunked algebra at community college and had an existential breakdown about my science major. Thankfully, the Foo Fighters didn't melt down on their sixth studio album releasing this week's subject matter, Echoes, Silence, Patience, and Grace. This week on Two Dudes and Tunes. Howdy there, everybody. Welcome to Two Dudes and Tunes. We're excited that you're joining this week this week. Uh, I'm one of the dudes, Wood Johnson, and I'm joined by my other dude, Chris Robinson, who I just learned has never watched the movie Super Troopers. How's it going, Chris? You degenerate.
1: Yeah, I'm a Philistine because I haven't seen one late 90s, early 2000s stoner comedy. I'm sorry, everybody.
0: 2001, and it's probably the greatest stoner comedy of our generation. (laughs)
1: Uh, I, well, I guess our generation wouldn't be Cheech and Chong. I was just thinking Stunner movies in general. I haven't seen that many. I've seen Pineapple Express. That's actually one of the few movies I ever went to more than once in theaters was Pineapple Express.
0: Hmm. I only saw it one time in theaters and I remember not being impressed until later in life. So whatever.
1: It, it, It probably doesn't hold up under scrutiny. The other movie that came out around the same time that I saw then and hated it and rewatched lately and thought it was hilarious was Step Brothers. oh my, my i hadn't goodness. seen that since it came out and megan and i rewatched it oh like sometime last year and i was dying it is so funny i'm not sure why it didn't hit like back then but man it's funny now
0: what did we just become best friends yep I have a coworker at work and he and I cannot go a single day without making a stepbrother's reference of some kind or threatening to wear tuxedos to a work meeting.
1: (laughs) Fantastic. Do you make a lot of room for activities? Oh, totally work.
0: Totally. Man, it is so great to be with you here this week. Uh, I know it's been a crazy week for both of us. What's happening with you? Yeah.
1: Well, the first thing, to point out is to apologize if I'm dragging a little bit because Megan and I got back to the gym. We're trying to be healthy because neither of us want to die of a heart attack at like 50. So um, we've been. We're trying to go three times a week. In this past week, we met our goal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is also week one, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, it's it's been it's been interesting waking up sore. Um, it's a challenge, but I, we both really enjoy it. It's just, it's like anything, you got to make it a discipline and you know, you do it enough times it becomes a habit.
0: Yeah. Well, that's good, man. Keep it up. I know that's something I need to focus on a little bit more in my life, a little bit less beer and a little bit more working out.
1: Oh, not less beer, just more working out. (laughs) A lot more currency, the more you work out yeah yeah the more you work out the more beer you can consume i think is how that works i'm no scientist but
0: so what are you listening to this week man
1: so this week i listened to a couple of albums that you had mentioned last week i listened to that album alabastered by austin hanks really thoroughly enjoyed that that's it's the kind of country that i wish were played more on the radio
0: yeah definitely uh, because
1: the the songwriting is really good, and and I also really enjoyed the musicianship. Like, mm-hmm. all the arrangements are pretty tight. It reminded me a lot. um, I don't know, just, like, a lot of, like, classic. There was some blues stuff in there, like some really cool slide guitar. There's, of course, you know, lap steel and stuff like that, but it, it was more varied in style than I was expecting. And then the other thing that I listened to, that you had turned me on to was that band Travis. Um, the better one. And I didn't really know. Yeah. Yeah. Coldplay plus. Um, I listened to their album. Well, it, it was the compilation of all their singles. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically a best of cause I didn't really know where to begin. And uh, yeah, I liked it. it. It, I don't have that much to say about it because it really, it kind of is just like, Coldplay, but the lyrics are better.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, it's funny. I was thinking, uh, I was talking to Tiffany about uh, that Austin Hank's album *Alabaster*, and she reminded me where we found him. He was the opening act to a Maroon Five concert that we went to.
1: Really? Yeah. That is so. What a yeah. weird choice.
0: Yeah. Well, he was amazing, and I remember we were at the uh, AT&T Center there in San Antonio. And uh, he opened up for uh, them, and it was great. So that's where I got hooked up with him a little bit.
1: Well, the, I'm glad you discovered him because I, I like it. It's definitely an album I'm going to dig into a little bit more. Nice. Man. What uh, What's going on in your world? I know you're doing this from uh, from the road, as it were.
0: Yeah. So I uh, I've been in the old company car this week. I've put about uh, 1,300 miles on on it uh, since Monday, which has been interesting, and I'm. Recording from the hotel room in Dallas, Texas, downtown Dallas on Commerce Street, which means if you hear a siren, it's literally right outside my window, and I'm sorry, but it is a thoroughfare for them. Uh, Driving up here and all that time in the car, I've been listening to uh, a couple of different albums, uh, Camp, which is C-A-A-M-P, their album Buy and Buy, which uh, I think I texted over to you. Uh, earlier this week, just a really cool acoustic folk album and kind of really fun vocals and vocalizations. Uh, So that, and then uh, the other thing I've been listening to is a uh, Dungeons and Dragons podcast called rude tales of magic. And I've listened to, dude, I've listened to, eight or nine episodes of it all the way through nonstop. Like oh, I'm you're ahead thi- of me now. on it. I am thinking in the voices of some of those characters. And I just love that <laughs> cast, man. It is so great. Definitely something you don't want to listen to around kids, but a lot of fun.
1: Yeah. It, it really impresses me. So I've listened to a couple of D and D let's play podcasts that are also supposed to be funny. And the, the others that I've listened to are funny, but this one, I feel like their skill at improv is what impresses me because the, the rules of D&D are, I, I mean, I've never played, but they're simple enough to comprehend, right? But mm-hmm. to be funny while you do it is well, is really what impresses me.
0: And so each one of the people who is portraying a character or playing the game is genuinely funny on their own. But then they've got just a really good dungeon master who really encourages them to ad-lib along the way and make stuff up as they're going. And uh, they do a yeah. couple of episodes uh, in their first season that they were live in front of us, like an audience at like a club or something. And hearing the audience reactions to them is uh, a lot of fun because it's the same things that I'm like busting out laughing and swerving into the other lane of traffic because it's just too stinking <laughs> funny.
1: Uh, well, I'm glad you survived because it's <laughs> Dallas. And you very well could have swerved into oncoming traffic and just died. And then I'd be doing this podcast by myself <laughs> in tears.
0: Let's go ahead and uh, jump into the album.
1: All right. Just a reminder before we start, if you like what you're hearing, please, please, please go ahead and leave a rating in review on whatever podcatcher app that you're using. Uh, we're, definitely going to need the feedback uh just to know you know are you enjoying it are you not hopefully you are we don't really want to hear if you're not but i guess it would at least be helpful if not damaging to our fragile fragile egos um and also you know if you comment and say something particularly funny or terrible uh who knows we might have to have a segment with some of your feedback. So please feel free to leave a comment and a rating.
0: Yeah. And if you want to contact us about anything, we've said on the the podcast, go ahead and send us a message at two dudes and tunes at gmail.com. That's all spelled out. Uh, And then you can also follow us on Instagram. We've got that up and going. We got our first couple of followers this week. That's at two dudes and tunes. We'd love to interact with you. All right, Chris. Here we go with Echoes, Silence, Patience and Grace.
1: All right. So this album was released in September of 2007, uh, which was the year that I graduated high school. I remember this album really well because I had gotten into their previous album, In Your Honor. And that album is really really interesting because it was the first time they had ever done a double album. And it was one album of like big stadium ready rockers. And then the second album was a lot of like acoustic folk influenced kind of more contemplative tunes. Mm -hmm. And that was the thing that helped them birth what would become Echo's Silence, Patience, and Grace. Uh, Dave Grohl was having a conversation with a record label executive, and he was saying, you know, I would love to do separate shows, you know, do an acoustic show, do an electric show. And the executive said, well, like, why not just do both?
0: Well, and he wanted to tour both shows at the same time, too. So, Yeah,
1: Yeah, yeah. Because they had they had done I don't know if you've heard Skin and Bones but that was a live uh, like a live performance that they had done where they took a lot of their tunes and kind of acousticified them yeah um, so they sat down and started writing and uh, a lot of the the demos were uh, they were kind of scattershot shot when I was reading about it. Uh, they mentioned an album uh, by the zombies that was, I I gave that album a listen and it was like a, a lot of like classically influenced chord progressions. They had a lot of like Mellotron. Um, It was very, I don't want to say prissy, but you know, a little bit more flowery and ornate, but then Dave Grohl was also listening to a lot of like real heavy stuff, kind of like, what's his bread and butter, you know, this band called no means no is one of the bands you mentioned. And so he wanted to combine these kind of disparate ideas.
0: Kind of to build on that. I think they were one of the things that's so great about this album is how intentional they were about that going into production. I think where you mm-hmm. see, I think where you see some of this falling short in other albums is, is they get into the studio and they don't really know what they're trying to do or what their goal is. And they end up piecing something together and you end up with some of those albums that are just kind of a train wreck that feels like they threw everything at the wall and the 14 tracks that stuck are the tracks. And this album doesn't have that feeling because they were so intentional about that, that disparate approach and making it fit the album. So even though you can go from a really heavy you know, driven electric grunge rock kind of sound into an acoustic song, the next track, it still fits. It doesn't feel out of place.
1: Yeah. It's, it really, the whole album has a really unified vision of what it's going to be. Every song is really executed like with an eye towards like really big moments but also really kind of like soft spoken moments. It's really cool. The the thing I think that made this album as good as it was is really the producer, because um, I think Dave Grohl looked at the demos and saw that they were in need of somebody to help them pull off kind of these big, like high, lows, big, small, mm-hmm. transitions in their music it was a thing that nirvana did a lot and it's uh something that like dave grohl was intimately familiar with but i don't i think he was a little intimidated by working acoustic stuff into their music because if you listen to their stuff up until in your honor they hadn't even dipped a toe in that um And so he kind of saw, like, we're going to need somebody to help us through this. And they hired Gil Norton Mm -hmm. as their producer, who's not a name I had ever heard before, but he produced their second album, The Color and Shape, uh, which has, or The Color and the Shape, excuse me, which has, like, I mean, a lot of people think that's their best record. Um, I would even kind of say they're probably right. I think it is. Uh, But it has, like, Everlong and um big me these, like
0: a lot of the tunes that defined who the foo fighters yeah. are. yeah
1: yeah uh monkey wrench so anyway they brought they brought gil norton on and he was real big on pre-production which is the thing that i think makes this album so good because they spent so much time just developing the songs mhm um,
0: well, and I I read, too, you know, not only was pre-production such a focus and getting that cohesive message, but this was the first time of any project uh, they had worked on that they wrote the lyrics before they'd recorded anything. So they really had time to cement those in and have what they were going to say as a part of the song, you know, not trying to yeah, make I, lyrics that fit the song, the music.
1: And I, I think that's interesting because... I think a lot of like songwriter focused people, I know I'm this way. And, um, the, the, my friend that I write music with Justin, you know, you kind of start with both a lot of times, like you might get a lyric that'll Mm -hmm. pop into your head or a melody, but I can't even think of a time where I've come up with a chord progression and a melody first and then slapped lyrics onto it. But that's the way Dave Grohl usually does things, I think. And yeah. so I do think that kind of inverting the way that he usually did things was what really made this album good. Cause it seemed like, well,
0: well and I wouldn't even say that it's, it's a matter that it made it better. I think, His process originally before this had been, okay, we're going to spend all this time writing the music, recording the music, and then lyrics were an afterthought. So we're in the studio. We got to get these things written and we've got deadlines and whatever. And I'm sure we'll get into the lyrical content of this album, but I feel like this is probably their best work lyrically and philosophically, maybe not necessarily their best work musically, but it's because their ideas had enough time to cement in and to make sure that they were giving a message and they weren't right against that deadline, trying to get a track cut and mastered to get it on a record, you know, by the deadline. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, and I think the other thing that makes this album really strong is uh, they brought in the rest of their band to do a little bit more part writing and arranging, uh, arranging. because the thing about Dave Grohl is he's a drummer. Mm -hmm. Like, he was a drummer first, right? Drummer for Nirvana. Um, But he knows, he's a multi-instrumentalist. He knows how to play bass. He knows how to play guitar. He can even play keys, which he kind of dabbled in on this record. And so, you know, he's one of those guys who's used to, he's got a vision, he's going to execute it. And yes. he's capable of it. Like their first album was all him, just yes. doing all the tracks. But in this case, him and uh, Taylor Hawkins, I think they're kind of writing partners mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Definitely, I think they sit down and yeah. Well, because that you know Taylor Hawkins is probably the only drummer who's better than Dave Grohl. You know, like he's fantastic, and they both have such a great ear for writing songs. But
0: hold on they there a second, kind of he. he Dave Grohl's not that great of a drummer. He got beat by like a seven year old girl in 2020. <laughs> yeah, I
1: think I think the little girl won on the talent of being amazing at seven years old. But there go. I, I'm gonna be the curmudgeon that says Dave Grohl is better than the cute seven year old girl. I'm just I'm gonna have to take that hey, stance right I now.
0: I couldn't leave this episode without making a mention of it.
1: Yeah, well, and I don't have a Twitter, so you can't at me. Ha ha ha. <laughs> but you know they're they're both they're both really talented writers, but the other two members of the band at this point are also extremely talented. Uh, Chris Schifflet, um, and I'm a bad podcaster because I didn't do the research on the bands that he's been in. but he was like he was a working dude. He'd been touring in um I think in like a punk band for quite a while before he even joined the Foo Fighters. Uh, but Nate Mendel, Um, Nate Mendel was part of, uh, part of a band that was wildly successful in the emo scene before this. And it's not really, they were both brought in to help work on arrangements instead of, I think what usually happened, which is just Dave Grohl deciding everything,
0: locking himself in a closet and making it happen.
1: Yeah, which you know, I mean obviously that's worked for him cuz he does a lot of a lot of that. Uh, but I think that was that was definitely something I noticed was there was there was more interesting guitar work. Not that Dave Grohl's not interesting because he's amazing. He's an amazing riff rider, but Chris Shiflett is real talented. This was kind of the first Foo Fighters album I noticed that had guitar solos on it that's one of the reasons I love this album Mm -hmm. is because the guitar playing on it is so excellent
0: well and I'm glad you bring that up I wanted to mention uh, one of the things that I watched an interview with Dave Grohl uh, from about the time this album was released where he talked about you know this was the first time that going into the production of the album he really wanted to focus on every voice in every instrument, having something dynamic and interesting happening with it throughout the course of each individual song. So, if you hear an instrument and it's as simple as like a ukulele in the background, at some point in that song, that album or that instrument, that ukulele is going to do something cool. And you really see each piece of the band get its moment in the limelight almost in every individual song. He was pretty successful at it.
1: Yeah, it this I think they are a band that really benefits from uh, the longer they're around, the more they let other members kind of contribute. And in their most recent album, which uh, by this time it won't be, or by the time this comes out, it won't be, but in their album uh, Concrete and Gold, Taylor Hawkins actually gets to sing. Uh, at least one song he sings but he's always been doing background vocals he's got a fantastic voice Mm -hmm. you know they really benefit from those added kind of flavors to the whole record
0: that's awesome yeah and i think i think this is a rare example of a band that the more they are together the more they're okay with being themselves
1: yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting to me that they didn't start at that place because Dave Grohl's always surrounded himself with talented musicians, you know, but it, it is exciting to kind of see, even even though there are some records of theirs they've released since um, this one that have kind of fallen flat to me personally, their music definitely, I think, benefits from Uh, from collaboration you know music is such a collaborative thing I find that the most satisfying results I get out of songwriting is when I sit down and write a song with Justin like the other day he came to me with a song that he had mostly completed but he needed a bridge and an ending and so we sat down and played through it and in the course of an evening i wrapped up a song and we came up with something that we really liked that would have been not as good if it had just been me writing the song or him writing the song
0: definitely yeah um, well and i and feel this, like that's the way oh, i feel like that's the thing that is hard to learn in life but that's the truth with everything not just music it's the truth with working on a project and delivering a powerpoint at work getting a second mm-hmm mind attached to it and helping finesse it into something that it wouldn't be if it was just one of you. And early in my life, that was something that was really hard for me to learn. I was very do it all myself and very kind of controlling of a lot of the projects that I worked. And there are some people in my life who sat me down and were like, listen, kid, you need to shut up and you need to let other people have their say. And you need to be happy. (laughs) You need to be happy when people are willing to take some portion of ownership of what you're working on. And my work since then has gotten a lot better once I learned to listen to them finally.
1: Yeah, and I mean, that kind of thing requires a lot of vulnerability. I still struggle with that at my job. Um, And, you know, it could be any number of things. It could be just that I probably have maybe a little bit too high of an opinion of my work or that I just don't give my coworkers enough credit or what have you. But it's a tough thing, but it is rewarding when you learn to work with other people. Um, And kind of speaking of that, one of the things on this album that kind of, I think, snowballed a thing that... Dave Grohl does a lot now is bringing on other people mm-hmm. to play on his albums. Um, on in your honor, he had Josh Homme, the guitarist from Queens of the stone age, come on and perform uh, some guitars for him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's fantastic. because Josh Homme is excellent. We have a Queens of the stone age album on our list and I'm so excited to get to it, but he had um, this guitarist, who I had never really heard much of before. Her name is Kaki King. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, she was taking a tour of their studio and, uh, I think Grohl just straight up like asked her like, Hey, do you want to play this song mm-hmm. on this album? And he said, he sat down and showed her the tune once and she picked it up like that and performed it. And I was listening to some of her music this week and she is, Super talented. She has a really interesting style of guitar playing. She'll play, you know, like you watch a guitarist play, and their hand is like under the neck of the the guitar, mm-hmm. right? But she plays with her hand like over oh, the neck, and she does a lot of tapping and stuff. Um, but she plays that tune, uh, ballad of the Beaconsfield Miners, uh, which I thought was like is a really interesting tune really a lot of fun, really breaks up the album really nicely. Uh, But it's, it's neat to me that he has gotten to a point where he can invite people in, you know?
0: Well, and I want to talk a little bit about the Ballad of the Beacons field miners. That's a a song he wrote kind of to honor um, an incident that happened in Tasmania back in 2006, where a mine collapsed and trapped a bunch of miners in it. And, uh the a couple of the miners inside, they were passing things through kind of like a, a a a hole in the ground that they could lower like a bucket with food and water and whatnot through. And one of the miners sent a message up that he wanted an iPod with Foo Fighters albums on it. And so, you know, that was one of the things that inspired, you know, Grohl and the band to write this song. And I just think that's like a really cool way of reaching out to somebody because that was in the news and I remember it being in the news like why would somebody ask for this and yeah
1: so that was just uh-huh. cool
0: here we are a year later and here's a song about you guys
1: It it is a testament to their music for sure because those guys I think were stuck in there for were they stuck in there for a few weeks at least it was
0: a long time
1: oh, yeah. yeah I remember you, being in the news to,
0: every day for a long time
1: yeah you have to be confident that like all right stuck in this stupid mind like if there's any band I'm going to listen to ad nauseum like you better love that that band because (laughs) that is going to be crazy making otherwise you know what I mean so like I feel like that's a huge compliment just to Dave Grohl he's like yeah I write the kind of music that people turn to in a time of crisis
0: well and I think it's a testament to the kind of person he is too kind of as a not that that was an act of philanthropy or whatever, but he is really a man of his audience in a lot of ways. He interacts with them. He's not too important to be involved with them. And earlier we made the joke about, you know, him being beat by a seven year old girl, but that's because, you know, he reached out and interacted with her after he saw her playing one of his drum solos from 25 years ago. And, you know, he reached out and made that a possibility and, played that along for several months with her, you know, through Twitter and Facebook and whatnot. And it's just a a sign of a guy who cares about his audience. And I think that shows in the way he writes his music. He doesn't want to put something out there that's absolute trash just to satisfy a record label. And yeah, some of their albums aren't as good as others, but that's probably a sign of where you are as a writer in that moment more so than his, you know, lackadaisical writing. It's you know, he cares. He wants to do well. And I, I really respect him for that.
1: Yeah. He's done several things that I really like. Um, One of his, out al- one of the Foo Fighters albums that I don't really care for that much is called Sonic Highways. And he went to eight different cities and kind of got a feel for those cities and, recorded a song in each, like at a studio in each place. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: I I don't care for the album that much, but he did a bunch of, I think it was for this album. He did a bunch of garage shows Mm -hmm. in each city in the garage of super fans. So like he would find somebody who like loved the Foo Fighters and would go do a show for him. And of course, like that's good PR for him. Right. But there are videos of it. I think he put out, you know, some promotional material or something. Um, It may have been on the documentary about the food fighters that was released a few years ago, but mm-hmm. like he's cutting it up with, you know, some dude in his garage in Jersey. There's one concert he did out in the Midwest where he like hops on some guy's tractor and gets nice. it stuck in a field. It's so funny. I wish I had sent it to you. You'll have oh, to look awesome. it up. You know, he's like cutting up with people. Uh He just does a lot of stuff like that. He's that he's one of the I most know. it's really. Ex-
0: well, I was just going to say he's one of the most influential rockers of the last 25, 30 years, and he's still not above being just a person. So,
1: yeah, yeah. You know, and in that documentary I mentioned um they were recording the album Wasting Light, which came out after this one. And, you know, if his daughters interrupted him in the studio, he didn't blow ad, up at them or anything. He would, like, stop and go jump in the pool with them or whatever, you know? Like, it, it's uh, it's all extraneous to the music, but I don't know. Stuff like that, I think, comes through in his music in a way. You know, he's, he has a lot of fun. There's a lot of joy in the music that he makes
0: definitely i agree 100% and it, you i feel like in this album in particular you feel the you feel what he was feeling for sure i want to talk a little bit about the pretender because i feel like that album or that song is the perfect way to kick off this album it sets the tone for the whole album
1: mm-hmm. and yeah it really does
0: it was almost an accident. It was the last song written and they wrote it like in a hurry right before they started recording. And it was just kind of tacked on and they didn't even really know if it was going to make the album. It was just one of those things that uh, Dave Grohl and the producers sat around and were like, we need one more song and maybe it'll make it, maybe it won't. And they knocked this out and, I, it's one of the best songs on this album and there are no bad songs on this album. I don't think either of us have said that yet. Like every song uh, is solid no, they're, and this is they're, almost the solidest.
1: Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny when I encounter an album like this that I really like I, like a bunch of people, I'm sure, like a lot of our listeners, will listen to it obsessively just mm-hmm. over and over and over they, again. They created and a repeat my...
0: button for a reason.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, I I broke the repeat button with this album. I had to stop listening to this album for a while, or at least to The Pretender. Um, but it was nice listening to it this week because I hadn't listened to it in a while. And this album is a really trying to think of a good analogy for it it kind of goes by before you realize it's done Mm -hmm. you know it's not a it's not a particularly short album um it's what like 12 13 tracks 12 right 12 tracks
0: and it runs 51 minutes um it really has it has a great
1: structure to it like the tracks the track list Uh, That's another thing that Gil Norton kind of helped them put a lot of thought into is not only how to structure the songs and make the acoustic and electric elements work together, but also like the way it runs, like I said, it's over before you know it. And it was a great ride all the way through. Like I was able to listen to this album maybe three or four times. Whereas with some of our other projects, um, Yeah, I could only listen to it one or two times before like making myself sick of it and going like, oh, I'm going to give this a bad rating. But it's, you know, just because I was sick of it, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And driving in the car the last couple of days, it has been a couple of times where I've put it on and I started at the very beginning and I play it. And before I know it, the the intro to The Pretender is playing again. I'm like, oh, we're starting over. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It it reminds me. It's good. It reminds me of that joke uh, from. Uh, family guy where they're playing the song in the cantina. Thank you. We're the cantina band. If you have any requests, shout them out. Play that same song. All right. Same song. Here we go.
1: So funny. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to look at the stuff that was released around this. Um, yeah. Because Oh, go ahead. Go. You you had something to say there. What were yeah. You say? So
0: I wanted to talk about that a moment because this this album came out so late in two thousand seven. I was shocked um, how low in the Billboard rankings it was, even though it came out the end of September. So it really only had mm-hmm. you know three months on the record charts, but it peaked in two thousand seven at number one hundred and forty three in the Billboard charts which was pretty shocking to me uh, considering some of the yeah. other stuff we've listened to. And I was like, Oh, well then that rolled over that momentum rolled over into 2008 and it would have shot way up. Well, it finished out at 92 on the billboard 200 that year.
1: Mm.
0: So yeah. it, it seems like it wasn't that great of a success despite how great it was. And when I look at some of the albums I put in our show doc, some of the albums that beat it and the number, the top Five or six albums of the year were Daughtry, uh, an Akon album, a Fergie album, a Hannah Montana soundtrack, and a Carrie Underwood album. And I'm adding number six here because I want to make a joke about it. And that's All the Right Reasons by Nickelback was number six in 2007. (laughs) I mean, we shouldn't underestimate stupid people in large numbers, I guess. but (laughs) Nickelback? Yeah,
1: there's... (laughs) Oh, <laughs> there's no accounting for taste. You're absolutely right. It, it kind of baffles me because I remember this album kind of being everywhere. And a lot of people that I knew who listened to music, listen to it, um, to, uh, bring out, uh, bring up, a a character from past episodes, Nancy, my, uh, first girlfriend I remember going with her to some like pizza parlor or somewhere in Austin that she had a friend who was like in a band who was playing and we sat down and talked with this guy and he was like kind of typical fedora clad, like insufferable neck beard,
0: (laughs) typical Austin musician.
1: Oh, well, he wasn't from Austin. He was from San Antonio. He just oh. happened to be doing a show there, so he didn't have that excuse going for him. But I remember talking to him about a couple albums, about this album, and about um, "Only by the Night"
0: mm-hmm.
1: by yeah. Kings of Leon. And he was real like snooty about both of those, both those albums. Just real like, oh well. Wow. Dave Grohl just sings the same thing a bunch of times, and it's not really very good. And his voice is. Rah, rah, rah. And I was just like, dude.
0: Well, in two thousand, am I
1: missing something?
0: <laughs> in two thousand and eight, he was probably a fan of all of Miley Cyrus's three albums that made the top twenty of the Billboard two hundred.
1: Uh. What? Well, no. He. I, I, <laughs> not to be a contrarian, I keep saying like no, nah, well, but he he was probably fans of like, like. 15 guys in their mom's basement in port in portland, like recording with a zither and the quartet of recorders and a harpsichord, like he was in a real strange stuff. I don't know what was up with that guy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you know, you're talking about the albums that were released. Um, I wanted to bring up. So a lot of the critical reception of this, kind of knocked it for being derivative radio rock. And I think on the one hand, you can kind of see where they're coming from because the production is very slick. Right? All mm-hmm. the melodies and the riffs are are catchy, you know. Um, but I think some of their criticism is fair in that they had their eye on kind of what was more relevant. Some of the bands that released albums... Uh, are bands that I like and listen to. There's an album called Boxer by mm-hmm. The National. They had a lot of like kind of softer um, kind of stuff influenced by 80s new wave. Uh, a band called Arctic Monkeys released Favorite Worst Nightmare. They're a lot of fun. They actually had an album that I kind of couldn't decide whether I wanted to put it on our list. I still might because I have it on vinyl. Um, but they are like an English band with these, like, heavy punk roots. Um, but they also are interested in, like, the melodies of the Smiths and, like, some more of that, like, 80s new wave influence.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the Texas band, uh, they're from Austin, actually. Spoon uh, released their album gaga Ga gaga ga, ga, ga. uh, And they have this really interesting kind of mercurial style. Their lead singer has an interesting voice. They have, like, a lot of piano, some, like, interesting... Uh, like off kilter riffs and stuff, but all of that to say, rock was just going in a different direction. I think and kind of still is.
0: Well, and and,
1: and so, so I think it's possible they lo- got lost in the shuffle. You know.
0: Well, and despite having some tepid reviews, the Metacritic rating for this album still came in at a very respectable 72. So a yeah. lot of people. Oh, loved it's a this fantastic. Album. You know, it's not just yeah. a one-off that you and I just magically happen to really like this and the fact that it's the only album on both of our lists. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of people had a lot of great things to say about it. And I think the uh, the record industry of America or whatever, the RIAA, really liked it because mm-hmm. uh, this ended up winning the Grammy for Best Rock Album uh, in 2008. Yeah. So it had legs. It did do well. It's not just that people thought it was uninspired and derivative trash. Uh, so.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, it's one of those things. If you look at the Foo Fighters and Dave Grohl specifically people, I think expect a lot of things from him, maybe a little bit unfairly because he was in Nirvana of all things, like they broke the mold. Mm-hmm. They, you know, a lot of people argue, I think pretty fairly that they like, killed hair metal and helped grunge, whatever grunge is, you know,
0: Nirvana break into the, the mainstream. 90s. Yeah. Nirvana defined nineties yeah. rock. And it,
1: their, their music is really groundbreaking, but I don't think the Foo Fighters are groundbreaking. I think they're just really, really good. You know, even if you look at their, their first um, their self-titled and like Color in the Shape, that stuff was ear-catching, but it all had like roots that you could point to and say like, oh yeah, he's doing like you know, a Melvin's thing there. Or, you know, this is like a chord progression he picked up from his days in Nirvana. And so I think at least when I was reading reviews, it seemed like a lot of people sort of sneer at some of the music he makes now that's a little bit more influenced by classic rock musicians. And I I think it's both unfair and, like, accurate. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of that, too, and... I think a lot of that too comes from people putting Nirvana on a pedestal. And I got to be honest, I don't think Nirvana is that great of a band. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. I don't think their output is that great. And you can at me uh, all you want about it. I don't care.
1: I have to, I have to disagree. Don't at me at him. (laughs) Because I have to disagree with that strenuously.
0: They have one good album. And that's about oh, all I feel you're about them. making me so
1: sad right now. Whatever, uh, I don't care. I maybe, feel, maybe I feel truth.
0: I feel like I'm speaking truth <laughs> to an entire segment of our audience right now.
1: I and I, I, I need to put a Nirvana album on our list just to spite you.
0: <laughs> you can do it, but I, I will listen to it and I will be fair to it. But I feel like reviewers and people who grew up listening to Nirvana listen to the work of Foo Fighters. Any Foo Fighters and feel like it's a pale imitation of a band that they have way too strong of nostalgic memories for.
1: I mean, that's you. You definitely can see. I know that there are bands that I look back on with a lot of fondness that probably aren't nearly as good as I think they are. So I, I can I can meet you halfway and kind of see what you're <laughs> saying. But man, throwing shade <laughs> on Nirvana, we like, we just lost. A thousand subscribers.
0: <laughs> so we're at negative nine hundred and ninety-nine.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah. We're ne- negative nine hundred and ninety-five because our, our our parents and our wives still have to listen.
0: I don't think my parents have ever heard of Nirvana, let alone listen to one of their albums. So they'll stick around.
1: Yeah. Um, well, do you want to look at what some of the reviewers said? I have some of this pulled up on my phone here if you want want to open up those wounds. So we talked about pitchfork last week, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and they predictably like took this album to task. They give it a 4.2 out of 10, which I think is really uncharitable. The, uh, author of the review, Adam Mordor, Mordor, Mordor.
0: You've been summoned here to answer the threat of Mordor.
1: <laughs> Mordor. I don't Something. know. Adam will, AM will call him, uh, he said, uh, that the album feels like a retread a shame for a band that as one of the few late nineties, early two thousands, modern rock groups to enjoy a long run of success has practically become a walking metonym for alt rock in the same way Kleenex has for tissues.
0: Well, and to counter, to counter that entertainment weekly, uh, Tom Sinclair wrote an article for them on this and he called it not groundbreaking, but that the foos have found a way to create their own archetype with an instinctive feel for what constitutes a killer song. And he also praised how damn near flawless the tone of the whole set feels.
1: Yeah. The, the tone is the thing to me for this album. I was sitting in the break room today at work, reading through some of the lyrics because this is an album that I'm pretty intimately familiar with and can sing along with and stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. But if you sit down and look at the lyrics, you know, I would say probably a third of the lyrics on this album are like so-so. But the rest of it is some of his best lyric writing. And so I think if if you're not on board with the music or if you write it off as derivative, you miss out on some of the stuff that I think is is rich about it. I don't know. It, w- it was hard for me to understand some of the, the criticism of the, like, the, the spin, or not spin, excuse me, the uh, Pitchfork review kind of kept song- calling the songs, you know, they would, like, label it kind of disingenuous or, you know, just kind of not, they didn't see the heart in it. And I kind of wonder how much they were paying attention, you know, because he's got some uh, some songs on here that actually, I think, get kind of personal.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think mm-hmm. when I when I listen to this album today and one of the things that I forgot to ask you earlier is what your first experience with this album was or if you remember it. For me, I did not. Oh, I did not hear this album in two thousand and seven. Uh, I believe the first time I actually sat down and listened to this album all the way through was in two thousand and eleven when I bought a car that this album was stuck in the CD player of. And it was the <laughs> That's great, amazing. That car was an absolute piece of junk, but that album made that car worth having.
1: I think I remember that car. Was that the, that was the silver Volkswagen, the diesel Volkswagen Beetle? Yes. That you had? Yeah. Yeah. And And you were always working on that too. When
0: I got rid of that car, that CD was still stuck in the CD player, but it was, and I felt like I'd lost a child when I got rid of it because of the CD. Um, Oh, you couldn't get the
1: CD? I guess it's kind of hard to dig CDs out (laughs) of CD players, isn't it? You can't just get pliers and like tug it out or anything
0: but I did buy an actual copy of the album after that. So that was my first experience with it. And I remember regretting that I had not found the album earlier, you know, that the album was four or five Mm -hmm. years old at that point. And I remember too, thinking that a lot of the songs didn't quite connect with me lyrically or philosophically. Uh, And when we get into our reviews here in a moment, I feel like I connect with them a lot more now that I'm in my mid thirties and I have a kid mainly because a lot of these songs are kind of growl writing to his newborn daughter or, you know, talking Mm -hmm. about, you know, coming, coming into this world and the things that she's going to face. And now that I see kind of the world through the eyes, he was looking at the world through at the time this album was put together. I have a lot more respect for it. And so while I agree some of the songs lyrically aren't as as good as others lyrically, I can see the message he's conveying in it, and it connects with me on a level that, you know, a year ago I would have just been like, yeah, it's an okay so-so lyrically song, but it's a great song, you know. Now I feel like the the, the so-so ones are him struggling to get a message across with intent.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you can definitely see that, you know, there's a big difference between the lyrical content we saw on X and Y that was felt real insipid and half baked. Whereas the lyrics on this album, especially for a lot of the big, like the first five tracks, the first four tracks, let's, let's say that are the big singles or what have you are coherent enough. Mm -hmm. They're passable. But once he gets into the tracks where he kind of stretches out musically, the lyrics also become really interesting. Come Alive, I think, is the song that is written about his daughter Mm -hmm. coming into his life and kind of changing it. Um, Stranger Things Have Happened, I think, is it's one of my favorite tracks on the album because it starts with, you know, Cranking that um, analog metronome, mm-hmm. and just a metronome and a couple of acoustic guitars going, um, but that, you know, is a real kind of intimate love song about you know trying to trying to change, and you know, m- encountering this this moment where he's not alone anymore. You know, he says you are not alone, dear loneliness. You forgot, but I remember this. Um, And then other kind of meditative stuff like statues and home, you know, like there, there's substance to this. Mm -hmm. And I guess what I'm saying is that I feel like the reviewers missed that or just didn't understand the music or, you know, maybe just wrote it off, you know,
0: well, and before we get to our reviews of the album, I want to do things a little bit out of order. I want to ask you what was your favorite track on this album?
1: Let me look at the track list here. Because it's hard to pick. I love <laughs> all the, all the songs musically. Man, they just they they hit all the right buttons for me. Yeah. The and one of the things I wanted to say about this album was in comparison to kind of other Foo Fighters albums, you know, sometimes, especially with that late nineties, two thousands production aesthetic, it's just a wall of guitars, just so many overdubs that things kind of like the guitars lose their attack and the individual notes and textures become kind of muddied. This album is so concisely arranged and all the songs are recorded in such a way that each individual element kind of has its space in the mix.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I don't know. I Favorite track. It's hard to say. I almost, I kind of want to say stranger things have happened, which is an odd choice. I know because it's all just acoustic and a metronome, but, the the solo in that song is the first one of the first things I remember about this album because i don't I don't have any specific aha moment where I bought this album and then like all of a sudden it's it just feels like it's always been in my life yeah but okay. that song and that solo the intimacy of that song and the fact that it was Chris Schifflet doing an acoustic solo um really stuck with me and I think kind of typifies what makes this album excellent is like, although it's radio friendly or whatever, there are some moments that kind of come out of left field relative to what the Foo Fighters do. So I, I think stranger things have happened. Has to be my favorite track. Yeah. What about you? What's your favorite, favorite song?
0: So I have a three-way tie and I do have like, they are definitely, yeah. <laughs> they are definitely my three favorite songs on the album though. Like I could listen to these three songs. And throw the rest of the album away, which is saying a lot, because I love every song on this album, yeah. just like you. And that's Come Alive, Stranger Things Have Happened, and Home. And
1: Yeah, oh man.
0: they Those three songs, Come Alive really didn't have a lot of meaning to me until about five months ago when I had my mm-hmm. first kid. And I actually heard this song, Come Alive, uh, just in one of my Spotify mixes the week we had our son. And I remember oh, it just wow. punching me in the gut and just I was sitting there. We were still in the hospital with him. Hadn't been discharged uh-huh. home and I was listening just on random and at some point in the past I'd hit star on that song and it popped up and I, I'm i not a very emotional person but I basically cried my eyes out holding my newborn son listening to that song. So, well, i have in a glass
1: case of a- Oh man, it, that's fantastic. it, it I means love a, it.
0: It means a lot to me. And so, to get this album so close to that memory and that's still being fresh, it's definitely up there. But then, I still really love home and I love just the music and the message of Stranger Things Have Happened. Like you said, that metronome mm-hmm. clicks into place and it brings back high school music lessons. And then, it's just so full and so there. Um, but I can definitely say to wrap this segment up, there is no song I dislike on this album, which is rare for yeah, me. Yes,
1: same, same. There's no, there's not, you know, there's not a lot of albums I listen to that I don't at least want to skip one or two tracks. And that song might not even be that bad. I just may be like bored with it and want to skip. But in all the listen throughs of this album that I did this week, I did not hit skip once.
0: Yeah, I hit pause when I was interrupted. I didn't let it play through where I missed it.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, we've let the critics have their say. Do you think we should chime in and uh, add our our voices to the discourse?
0: Absolutely. I think we should. And I want to remind our listeners uh, of our rating system. We rate our albums on a scale of one to six guitar strings. One string being a Nickelback album stuck on repeat in a shopping mall with no exits, no air conditioning, and in Mesa, Arizona. And six strings, oh. yeah, it's pretty bad.
1: That sounds like hell.
0: <laughs> I wanted to say that. And then six strings <laughs> six strings being the greatest album ever played by the greatest album ever in a private concert at your villa overlooking the bay at Monte Carlo. Chris, how big is your house at Monte Carlo?
1: It's, uh well, I unfortunately am the gardener, so I live in the guest house, but it's the guest house in Monte Carlo, so it's pretty sweet, at least. Nice. I, I I dream big in small ways. Um, So for me, you know, I had not decided by the time we started our conversation how to rank this album. We kind of talked about it a little bit off the podcast, but... I'm just in general reluctant to call something perfect. Um, I don't know if that makes me an arrogant prick or (laughs) if I'm just too choosy. Um, but man, it's awfully hard to find a reason to ding this album, a string, um, because the arrangements are there. Um, Dave Grohl's melody we didn't his melodies are fantastic Mm -hmm. on this album uh we didn't really talk too much about the production of it or his voice but he does a lot more singing just him he doesn't double his vocals for every single song which he tends to do Mm -hmm. um some of the other band members get the limelight shown on them a little bit. Taylor Hawkins is starting to do some backup vocals. The songs have a wide variety of styles represented in them, but they're also all tonally really consistent. They all kind of fit together. Um, The only thing I could think of dinging this album for would be some of the weaker lyrics in the big accessible pop tunes but I kind of don't want to do that. I think this has to be the first ever six string album. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I can't, I just can't bring myself to ding it for any of its flaws. It's not perfect. Um, but it is a perfect Foo Fighters record, I think. And so I have to give it six out of six strings. It's fully functional. Nice. Uh, like Lieutenant Commander Data.
0: There you go. Um
1: Yeah. <laughs> What about you? How did you feel about it?
0: Well, I love that you brought up the the topic about, you know, not being able to ding it. I, as I was preparing this, I was reminded of a professor that I had back early on in my college career who never gave anybody a 100. And the first day of class, the first day of class, he got up there and he started talking about nobody is, you know, Henry David Thoreau. Nobody is perfect nobody in this class will get a hundred. In fact, most of you will fail this class. And oh, like he's, that was how he set the tone for the class on syllabus day. And I, yeah. I script and scrapped and, you know, made it through that class. And the next class I had was with no joke, his twin brother and <laughs> oh, his no. twin brother was like, man, if you survived my brother, you're probably a great writer uh, and you're probably going to do well in this class. And I got nothing less than a 90 in his class. So that huh. dichotomy of, you know, nobody makes an A in this class versus, you know, making really good grades and being validated. When I listen to this album and like I mentioned, you know, being able to see it through kind of similar eyes to what Dave Grohl was viewing the world through at the time that he wrote it and released it, you know, when I hold my son and I kind of, think and put myself in the place that he must have been in as he was doing it. I listened to it and I think that, you know, it may not, it may have its shortcomings. It may have its flaws, but credit needs to be given where credit is due. And Mm
1: -hmm. not only,
0: not only is this a great Foo Fighters album, when I compare it to a lot of its contemporaries, when I compare it to Coldplay's X and Y, which came out about the same time and we gave four strings to or three strings to whatever I gave it last week. Cause I hated the yeah, lyrics three
1: strings. <laughs> this is, this is
0: easily three strings better than X and Y was.
1: Yeah. And, yeah, for sure.
0: And with that in mind, I too am giving this my first ever six string. And I anticipate this will be rare when I look at the other albums on this list for both of yeah. us, but this yeah. album deserves it. And I feel like, It shouldn't have gotten it did not deserve all the shade that it got when it came out. And it has aged exceptionally well. You listen to it today compared to some of the albums that are coming out today, and it it is still a great album. We don't have to listen to it kind of like the wall and go, Well, in context of when it came out, it was a great album, you know, compared Mm -hmm. to everything else. Nah, it it stands up today.
1: Yeah, man, I I agree with you. And just to tack on like a tiny little point to what you're saying, I remember vividly when In Your Honor came out. That was my favorite Foo Fighters album for a long time. And I kind of re-listened to it a little bit uh, last year, kind of just put Mm -hmm. it on my phone to see, like, how do I feel about this? And I still like some of the tracks on it, um, but I think that Echo Silence Patience and Grace was better um, and listening to it again this week for the podcast um, it's going to stay on my phone for quite a while as far as I can tell so I agree with you it is aged fantastically it, so. is,
0: it is aged well enough that it's another album that I bought the vinyl for this week
1: oh man see I need to go out and do that now so if it's I that go good I'm going. I'm going
0: to listen to it for real
1: Absolutely. Well, we uh, gave Echo Silence Patience and Grace. It's due. We're done. We've rendered a verdict. Uh, why don't you tell the peeps what we're doing for next week? Because we have something a little different than the uh, normal fare.
0: Yeah. So instead of, you know, consulting the great Oracle in the cloud and hitting the randomized button, It's kind of funny, um, a month ago when we did the quick review on the new three tracks that dropped for the Foo Fighters new album, uh, Chris and I kind of chatted back and forth and decided that instead of hitting the button this week, we were going to select their new album, Medicine at Midnight, which releases actually tonight at midnight, uh, February 5th, 2020, for those of you listening in the future when we actually release this. And so... It's by a real cruel twist of fate, I guess, that we ended up doing two Foo Fighter records in a row, but I think that's going to give us a little bit more time to talk about the content and the the characters that the Foo Fighters have been able to be in the years since this album came out. I mean, it's been 15 years ago now, so a lot has transpired, and I'm looking forward to being able to review something that's brand new and fresh off the presses and we're going to have no preconceived notions about other than the three tracks we listened to about a month ago. What do you think, Chris?
1: Yeah, I, I'm excited for this plan. It'll be interesting because they, they're they kind of they're bordering on prolific at this point. They've been around for a while. I saw a magazine article the other day that had a quote on it from an interview with Dave Grohl, and he said something along the lines of, the uh the band breaking up would be like your grandparents getting a divorce <laughs> which is a real silly uh, silly way of putting it but i am interested to see what they're up to now and kind of compare and contrast like you were talking about
0: exactly it's been four years since they released an album so it's gonna be awesome chris i had a great time talking with you this week i uh i hope you uh, have a good rest of your week <laughs>
1: Thanks, man. Likewise. I really enjoyed it.
0: Cool beans. Well, hey, everybody. We had a great time. Thank you for tuning in. We will see you next week.
1: See y'all.